0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as blacks and African-Americans. With me are five of my black classmates, John Woodford from Ann Arbor, Jerry Secundi from Pasadena, Ezra Griffith from New Haven, Fred Easton from Minneapolis, and George Jones from Atlanta. I'm also joined by classmates Jay Pasikoff from Williams College, Bill Collins from Aiken, South Carolina, Marcy Benstock from New York City, Alden Briscoe from San Mateo, Hampton Howell from Nashville, and Doug Shapiro from Louisville. This episode is about the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, one of the worst incidents of racial violence in U.S. history, and for a long time, one of the least known. guest is Dr. Carlos Hill from the University of Oklahoma. He is chair of the Department of African and African American Studies and author of the book, The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre.
1: The May 31st, June 1st of 2021 will mark the 100th anniversary of, I believe, the deadliest single episode of anti-Black violence in American history, um, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. And, you know, for the last five to six years, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, as well as other groups in Tulsa, but also groups around the state of Oklahoma have been organizing, mobilizing even to help not just Oklahomans, but uh, Americans understand what happened a hundred years ago and why we need to be paying attention to this history right now as we approach uh, the the anniversary. So I'm a professor uh, at the University of Oklahoma. I teach uh, in the Clara Luper Department of African and African-American studies. I'm also the chair of that department. Um, I, since I have arrived to Oklahoma in 2016, have been working closely with the Centennial Commission to figure out ways to make the race massacre not just something that is taught in Oklahoma schools, but something that is taught at a very high level and has the kind of impacts we would like it to have um, in terms of racial reconciliation, racial healing, etc., And so part of what I've been doing since I came to Oklahoma to teach in the Black Studies Department has been to work with the commission to build teacher institutes um, that are designed to provide teachers resources, professional development, but also just confidence and inspiration to teach this really difficult history of America's worst single episode of of anti-Black violence. And so uh, beginning in 2018, every summer since, and every summer since, we have offered an institute, a teacher institute, designed to do the things that I mentioned. And so, I'll I'll just kind of cut to the chase, so to speak, and 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 just tell you, you know, what occurred and why we're, you know, you know, a hundred years later, um, still, you know, need to talk about this. And so. On June on the, may March. I
0: start you off with a question?
1: Yes, you can. I, yes.
0: Do you have a sense of why it occurred?
1: Oh yes, um, I've spent my whole career thinking about why, you know, acts of racial violence occurred um, in America, whether it's lynchings or mobs attacking black communities, and there's a lot of. Um, you know, reasons, uh, deep causes even, for why what occurred in Tulsa um, happened. You know, racial violence against Black people was common at this time. And when I say common, I mean, you know, during the 1890s, um, it was common for a Black person to be lynched every three days Uh, in America. Uh, during the 1890s, and very little changed in terms of that gore statistic into the 20th century. And so racial violence uh, in which, you know, no one, not the, you know, not the law enforcement, not individuals who perpetuated it, were ever held accountable. And so the race massacre takes place or took place in a culture and a context in which racial violence against black people occurred often frequently and there was little if any accountability for perpetrators or the um you know authorities who were responsible with uh you know maintaining law and order or just simply protecting uh, its citizens and so the deep systemic reason for why the race massacre happened is the culture of white supremacy that pervaded America, that pervaded Oklahoma, and just the the sheer indifference to the suffering of black people and particularly those afflicted with racial violence. And so in this context, and we could talk about the red summer of 1919, we could talk about a number of incidents that lead up to the race massacre, but I just wanna paint in broad strokes that there is this culture of white supremacy, of white supremacist violence, and then white indifference to that violence. Um, that explains why, uh, to a certain degree explains why, um, you know, on the morning, early morning hours of June 1, uh, at 5 a.m. to be exact, a mob of thousands of whites, um, some of which who had been deputized by local authorities Uh, as well as local authorities, including the National Guard, the Tulsa-based National Guard, uh, entered, invaded the Greenwood District beginning at 5 a.m. And systematically, over the course of the next uh, five to six hours, um, systematically burn, loot, destroy, the Greenwood District, which was about a 35 block area at the time. Every structure in this community, um, every significant structure, homes, businesses, schools, hospitals, libraries, everything was either completely destroyed or severely damaged in the rampage. Um, we, you know, Based on survivor accounts, uh, believe that there were airplanes used to hasten the destruction of the Greenwood District. Uh, airplanes that uh, eyewitness accounts, black eyewitness accounts tell us uh, there were whites shooting down from these airplanes, dropping incendiaries on homes and businesses, again to accelerate um, the destruction. Um, There were machine guns, one placed on Standpipe Hill, which overlooked the Greenwood district, but also another um, machine gun placed in a granary, again, that looked down upon the Greenwood district and fired upon not just fleeing black survivors, but homes and businesses. And so when I talk about what occurred as a massacre, I'm talking about the ways in which uh, the attack was a deliberate and intentional attempt, aided and abetted by local law enforcement, to destroy a civilian community, to destroy the Greenwood community. And so, you know, the result of, of this violence, this mayhem. You know, according to the American Red Cross, as many as 300 Black people died as a result of the violence, as a result of armed whites, many of which had been deputized uh, alongside uh, Tulsa police. Um, The the net result of that, we believe, was at least as as many as 300 Black people died as a result of that violence. And so the race massacre is this horrific moment um, in Oklahoma history where a mob and local authorities uh, banded together to destroy um, you know a, a civilian community. The could green we had, we
2: had, could you were about to give us maybe uh, some statistics that would shape it up like how many? Black people lived in Tulsa. Yeah, population of Tulsa and things like that. Could you could you kind of talk about that and then
1: and then how many
2: left their homes? Or, yeah, so we can get a picture.
1: So the Greenwood District circa 1921 um, had nearly, or some estimates, a little bit more than 11,000 Black residents. Um, most of the property in the Greenwood District, which again was about a 35 block area, um, was owned um, by Black people. And so the Greenwood District is sizable, 11,000 residents, you know, geographically a significant area, 35 blocks. But then also um, the Greenwood District, um, you know, circa 1921 was understood as the Negro Wall Street, the quote-unquote Negro Wall Street of America. And this was a a label that had been um, applied to the Greenwood district by um, Booker T. Washington, the very influential, powerful, probably the most powerful uh, black man in American history, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. He referred to Greenwood, uh, we believe in 1913, um, as the Negro Wall Street of America because of the kind of energy, entrepreneurial energy that was occurring, the kind of, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the ways in which, you know, the Greenwood district kind of, you know, I wouldn't say overnight, but very rapidly becomes kind of a, a symbol for what was possible for black people in segregated America. Because in 1900, um, you know, there were zero businesses in the Greenwood district, but by 1921, uh, there were nearly 200 black owned businesses. And then when we start to think about black property holders, many, 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 many more. And so for Booker T. Now
0: we're getting to the answer to the question I asked. Say that again. I say, now we are getting to the answer to the question I asked. Yes. Why did they do it? <laughs> um,
1: yeah. Well, I would say that's not why they did it, in part, because there were other affluent Black communities in this country, more affluent than, than, than Greenwood, and they didn't experience this level of violence. Um, and there was, you know, the culture of white supremacy pervaded America, and so I, it isn't simply just their success. Their success certainly created white resentment. What occurred was a willful, right, a willful attempt to destroy a community, unlike we had seen before. Um, you know, by the uh, by, a, 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 a local authorities, and so there was certainly resentment toward Greenwood. Um, But that didn't make Greenwood different from any other successful black community um, in America, um, or at least was a a fluent one. But it's certainly, there was certainly resentment. What what I try to focus on are the actions, the actual actions that the white white leadership took, um, you know, during the massacre. They had an opportunity, they had many opportunities um to de-escalate the situation the violence as it was uh, unfolding but instead of doing that they um through deputizing whites um and uh, giving them free reign to arrest detain and even kill black people who they believed were in rebellion against white tulsa um the ways in which even When homes are being destroyed, looted, um, burned to the ground, uh, fire department are told to stand down and let those homes, businesses burn. And so these are the willful actions um, of the, you know, of the city of local authorities that created the circumstances by which we believe as many 300 blacks died as a result of the. Invasion of Greenwood in the early morning hours of, of June one, and certainly the destruction to the community, the buildings, the homes, and the like that were that was willful actions.
2: What kind of evidence did, did have historians uh, compiled to show the kind of planning that this would have required? There must be interesting records.
1: Uh, well, one of the really horrific. Um, Uh, legacies of the race massacre is there was never truly an investigation into what occurred until 80 years later. Certainly there was a grand jury and panel, but that grand jury's main goal was to lay blame on the feet of the black community uh, who they believe were responsible for instigating this massacre. Um, And so in 1920, you would imagine there would need to have been, that had to have been an accounting for this destruction. How did this happen? Who is responsible? And one of the reasons why this is so frustrating hundred years ago is because that investigation never occurred. And so historians like me have to say things like, we believe as many as 300 black people perished. This is an estimate based on the American Red Cross but we never, no, no one has ever been able to document uh, the exact amount uh, because the investigation that should have occurred never did occur.
2: Dr. Hill, I'm curious: did the black community fight back at all? Were any whites killed? Did they just yeah sit and do nothing?
1: <laughs> so there were three, 13 whites that. Um, that have been documented again, 80 years later, that die uh, as a result of the violence. We don't necessarily know um, how, you know, you know, how that occurred, but they 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 died as a result of the violence. Um, and so, and there are 26 confirmed blacks who died as relate as as a result of the violence. But we know based on oral history testimony, uh, as well as you know, oral, you know. The American Red Cross and their estimates that that you know 26 black people killed is you know uh, uh, you know a, a deep underest you know underestimated, um, and so we have at best fragmentary evidence of what occurred, um, and but much of what we know um, is based based upon survivor accounts of the violence. And so I don't know if any of you have had the, um, the, the ability or the chance to watch um, Mother Fletcher or Viola Fletcher um, as well as the other survivors who gave testimony in Congress on this past Thursday. Uh, but you know, yes. Viola as well as uh, the other survivors spoke very um, graphically, vividly, about what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced, how they've been traumatized, you know, for more than, for nearly a hundred years. And so I think, um, you know, we know what we know about, particularly about the block experience of the massacre, but I think the massacre in general, we know that because of survivors, not because the state, not because the, you know, the city of Tulsa wanted those stories to be told, Found a way to document things that survivors said about what occurred to them. We don't. The city has never, ever taken an interest in doing <clears throat> that, and only did the state do that 80 years ago, at the behest of descendants um, who uh, found a way to create an opening in 1996, and eight, 1997, to to push for um, a a, a fact-finding commission that would, for, for once, um, try to document what happened.
3: Getting back to the question of the causes of this, I mean, an event that started at 5 a.m. was certainly not some sort of a spontaneous gathering. honor mm-hmm. uh, or others have mentioned, there must've been a lot of uh, planning for the event and i would have thought there there must have been a whole sequence maybe over many years of problematic interactions between the black community and the white community and if there was any kind of a newspaper in the town uh, wouldn't some of this have appeared in the newspaper and be available for historians like yourself to you know to to investigate now
1: um of course, this is covered in the newspapers, but the details that you're asking about the organization for, you know, the, you know, planning, none of that stuff um, has ever been a part of the public record. Um, you know, and moms just don't behave that way. There, there isn't a paper trail left after um, and, and survive and, and why to participate in the organization and planning. Um, of this invasion certainly haven't spoken about it. And so um, what we have, you know, is we know, I mean, newspapers cover the destruction, they cover to a certain degree, the loss of life. They they, they, they chronicled kind of the the rebuilding to a certain extent, but not very much. Uh, They they chronicled the sort of discourse, white discourse around the massacre. Um, but in terms of you know how did this um, invasion occur you know the time you know all of that a lot of that most of that has been uh, I think lost to history uh, and, and, and 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 if it if it's if their sources connected to it they remain uh, in hiding um, but I but I think there I mean understanding the history of lynching and racial violence uh, very little organization in in many cases was needed um, in terms of you know you know group a group of whites coming together to capture or or or, or lynch a black person and or attack a black community Um, but with Tulsa the Greenwood district what occurred is beginning about 10 a.m. When, um, when when the massacre really begins is at the courthouse when shots are fired or exchanged between black men who have come downtown to offer assistance and aid to Dick Rowland, a black man who had been alle- who had, who had allegedly assaulted a white uh, young white girl. That allegation was later um, has been debunked. And certainly, uh, you know, Sarah Page, the, the person who was allegedly assaulted, uh, refused to press charges um, against Dick Rowland. But nonetheless, what brought men, what brought Black men downtown was to offer assistance to, to local police because they believed Dick Rowland would be lynched um, as well as, um, you know, maybe perhaps others. And so they wanted to show, um, you know, show that the community um, was was not going to just stand by and let that happen. And so, unfortunately, that show of force, that show of sort of resistance, uh, led to whites attempting to disarm some of the black men downtown, and in doing so, in the in the sort of fracas fric- fruc- that that occurs following that, a shot is fired. And from that one shot, sh- shots were fired between black men and white men. And that, at that moment, beginning at about um, 10.30 um, on the evening of the 31st, is what creates the context for what would occur later. And so between 10.30 and 5 a.m., uh, there, there was, um, a, a uh, sort of a, I would say, a plan or or a mobilization of whites um, that ultimately leads to the invasion at 5 a.m. But documenting that um, and, 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 and talking about in very clear terms who you know who who was the who orchestrated it. We know that the city played a role in that orchestration, um, but getting really finite about the planning and the timing and, and who did what and how they did it. That, that part has been shrouded in, in deep uh, sort of um, mystery. Um, but my point is that all, none of it could have happened without the complicity uh, of, uh, of the police um, and local uh, and city leaders. Um, there was much that could have been done beginning at 10.30 p.m. on the 31st to prevent the escalation of violence that occurred the day after. Um, But instead, um, the city, um, through deputizing, through uh, and and giving broad reign to men who had come downtown to Lynch Dick Rowland, giving them, you know, deputizing them, weaponizing them even, and giving them free reign to, again, to, arrest, detain, kill Black people who they uh, believe were in rebellion against uh, white Tulsa. That was what set this on this really horrific track. And so to answer your other question, yes, Black people did resist this violence. They didn't sit on their hands. They attempted to, first and foremost, protect their own person, but also family, their family members. First, initially, there were many who tried to flee in the early morning hours um, from the community. Some who did not, who stayed and and tried to defend their their home, their property, their business. Um, And then there were Black men, the Black men who went downtown, uh, who, after the initial exchange of gunfire, fled back to the Greenwood District, but recognized that whites were, you know, pursuing them. And they made the courageous decision not to run or flee, but to stand and fight. And they were able to, uh, during the, you know, during the late evening, early morning hours, hold off uh, the, the the mob of whites who were shooting at them into the community. And so there was resistance, there was, you know, collective armed resistance, but that resistance wasn't enough um, to hold back the thousands of whites who had organized themselves um, on, the, on the outskirts or on the borders of the Greenwood district by 5 a.m. who would en masse enter into the community, um, and begin to systematically, um, burn, loot, kill,
4: um, those who remain and those
1: who were, who were attempting to
4: resist. May, may, may I ask whether the sexualized, the initial sexualized complaint, was that trumped up or, or was it a serious claim? Do you, I mean, do you know when I say trumped uh, up, I mean did they did they did they, they, they invent this with the intention of responding to it, or was this actually an episode that occurred that could could have been the match that that started the the fire, the conflagration?
1: Yeah, I mean I get this question a lot. I mean I just I can't say this enough. There wasn't a coordinated plan from start to finish to orchestrate this. Um, what occurred was a an incendiary um, allegation that a black man had raped a white woman. And that incendiary allegation fuels white anger right. uh, initially at Dick Rowland, but ultimately, when black men come downtown at the community and and, and so there wasn't a, a long, you know there, there weren't, you know weeks before, uh, or even days prior, a kind of a plan to destroy the Greenwood. That just that's just not how that's not how racial violence occurred in America. That's not what happened in Greenwood. What happened was a series series of escalating events that 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 created the conditions upon which this community was destroyed. Um, because what I say to people very very clearly is that um, you know had law enforcement did more to stem the violence, we would we would perhaps be talking about a race riot versus a race massacre. Um, And so so there there was there was I can say no coordination, you know, in the weeks before, even days before. But what happened was a series of escalating moments and events that could have been prevented or at least you know, there could have been a greater attempt to de-escalate. I mean, one thing that the city could have done very easily is attempted to disarm the black men and the white men who begin to shoot at each other, you know, um, at about 1030 on the 31st. They don't do that. They instead, um, you know, begin to deputize whites who have been shooting at black men who are fleeing from downtown, um, the the allegation um, that Dick Roland assaulted Sarah Page was the most uh, inflammatory, incendiary allegation that you could make at the time against a black man. Well, that's and I'm- no matter what, it was going to create a situation where whites became outraged and threatened lynching of Dick Rowland and even greater violence um, to his family or to the community. This happened every day in America. Um, There were 5,000 Black Americans lynched in America between 1880 and 1960. And those are just the Black victims that we know about. Um, And 20 20 to 25% of those Cases were allegations of of rape, and so the allegation of um, rape—you know, black man assaulting, raping a a white um, woman—is accounted for numerous lynchings uh, in American history. And even when it's not wasn't a violent attack, even looking at a white woman could be a lynchable offense. Right. And so there didn't need to be any credible um, credibility behind the allegation. All there needed to be was an allegation from a white person, not even the person who who was who was who was, a, who was a proposal, supposedly attacked. Um, and so but we we know that or I shouldn't say we know, um, you know, Sarah Page did not ultimately. um Uh, filed charges against, there wasn't a case brought against Dick Rowland, and that is really solid evidence that nothing occurred, yeah. A lot of discussion of the
2: Tulsa uh, massacre now, much more than there has been in the past. That's good to see. You know, here at University of Michigan, Scott Ellsworth, who was a white guy from from, uh, Tulsa, as, uh, wrote a book back in 1982 which is one of uh, the most meticulously researched and historical accounts of the uh, massacre, yeah. massacre that has been written so that's quite a years back so there and it's also been in fiction uh, there are many various novels so it's it's getting out there mm-hmm. more than ever before i wonder what people were taught in oklahoma let's say in their High schools back when we were growing up maybe you would know george if you're from oklahoma well did anyone have this in their textbooks back then george so
5: i can't speak for what was happening across the state but i've i think i've, I've said this before during my i believe freshman year in high school there was a two semester sequence the first semester was called civics And the second semester was called Negro History. And because of the fact that it was was taught by Black people in an all-Black high school, there was no attempt to cover up any of the violence that had been perpetrated on, on Black people over the centuries. Needless to say, there was a lot of detail that was not available at that time. But we learned about slavery. We learned about the, the Tulsa massacre to the extent that it was possible to know about it at that point. <coughs> and of course, growing up the with this district in Tulsa had come back to some extent. And I can remember going over there f- with, with some frequency to get barbecue mm. in, in that area. Mm-hmm. So uh, whether or not it was that information was widely disseminated in schools around the state, I have no idea. I cannot imagine that it was covered in white high schools at all, Mm -hmm. but my guess is that in black schools, as in mine, there were at least some instances in which those kinds of
0: situations
5: were discussed and described.
0: Well, Carlos, I mean, how, how was it covered up so, so broadly, I mean, and uh, when did that begin? I guess it began right away, the cover-up.
1: When people talk about the cover-up, they talk about Documents being destroyed, uh, you know, you know, newspaper clippings disappearing from, you know, from manuscript collections or archival collections. That is a part of it, I I would suppose. But the cover up is in the refusal to actually investigate what occurred, um, because even today um, we're still trying to uncover where mass graves uh, were created. Uh, in Tulsa, martial law had been had been established in Tulsa beginning at 11:30 on June 1, um, and you're telling me that we have no idea where these graves are uh, and who were responsible for creating them, and so that is because the city leaders, as well as with the watchful eye of the state, did not want us to and refused to. Um, you know, include those elements in, you know, in the reports, uh, you know, particularly the grand jury reporter investigation that occurred. And so the, the cover-up begins immediately with the refusal to actually investigate what happened, document what happened, and what, what, what then happened in the preceding years is individuals, white individuals, black individuals connected to it, begin to die, pass away, leave Tulsa. And and that information, that knowledge, right? um, Never gets captured uh, for posterity. And so um, that was the cover up uh, in in, in broad strokes. Um, But certainly there are, um, you know, accounts of uh, police going around to photographic studios that were processing photos that were taken by whites of the destruction, of the violence, potentially of masquerades, potentially of whites engaged in harming, you know, or killing, um, you know, Black residents, uh, Greenwood residents. Those photographs, some of them, maybe the most of them were, were, you know, were, were, were captured by police. We don't know. Um, but certainly there has that there, that's been long rumored that police went around to photographic studios to capture that photographic evidence. And you know years later, and this is a story that Scott Ellsworth tells, years later, some of those photographs resurfaced in the you know in 1970, 1971 in Tulsa, in, in a in a in a Tulsa police uh, precinct, and officers at that time saw some of these grisly photographs and were forever sort of changed. And one of those officers who saw uh, some of those photographs shared what he saw with Scott Ellsworth, and um, you know you know for Scott, who at the time was very interested in uncovering mass graves some of what this police officer said he saw were photographs of mass graves. And so this little tidbit, you know, gave, and you know, at the time, you know, greater credibility. He had a Tulsa police officer saying this, uh, not a survivor, um, that he had seen photographs that would indicate a mass grave. Um, and so in, the you know, 1997, 2001, when this is happening, it gave tremendous sort of uh, credibility for the search, the pursuit of mass graves. Uh, You know, and so um, there, there, there have been cover ups, there have been, you know, uh, attempts to destroy, um, you know, information, but the true cover up begins with the refusal to investigate.
0: Well, what is the objective now of the uh, black community in terms of uh, what, some sort of compensation or what?
1: It's not so much compensation, that's a part of it, but it's justice. Um, You know, this community has never even gotten a modicum of justice for what occurred. Um, And, you know, justice has been deferred for a hundred years, but it should not be permanently deferred. And so what, what I hear, and individuals in the community talk about and certainly the organizations that have spearheaded the centennial is justice for not just survivors um, you know but also the community um, you know the race massacre is the deadliest single episode of anti-black violence in american history but it also represents a liquidation of, of black intergenerational wealth um, the greenwood district was one of the most affluent black communities in America at the time. Um, By my estimates, there were uh, four black millionaires. Um, They, in in today's dollars, uh, they would be millionaires based on their worth or net worth uh, in 1921. Uh, And if you go even beyond sort of the black millionaires, like say, J.B. Stratford, who was the owner of the, uh, of the Stratford Hotel. O.W. Gurley, was a founding visionary for the Greenwood District. Uh, there's some few others that we could talk about. But besides those very wealthy, affluent uh, Black people who called Greenwood home, who had helped to build Greenwood, um, there are some current estimates. And there will be a, a really good essay in National Geographic in the next few weeks that I've been able to learn about um, before it's published, it will sort of talk about and document the ways in which if we were to put the Greenwood district circa 1921 on the open market today, uh, its value would be uh, $600 million in today's dollars based on its land holdings, the value of its businesses, um, homes, etc. cetera. And some would say that that number is too small. Um, But let's—if we just stick with that number, we can begin to think about if—if that is true, that six hundred million dollars or thereabout, you know, what would if the community had been left untouched and could have, you know, grew at on average just one percent for a hundred years. The kind of intergenerational wealth that that could have created um, for Black Black Greenwood, Black Tulsans. and so when we think about the massacre, we need to think about it as the deadliest single attack. But the ramifications of it, one of the largest and I think most important ramifications, is the ways in which Black wealth that had been very, um, you know, you know, just You know, painstakingly built in a very hostile climate, which was America and Oklahoma, um, you know, how that was destroyed and never uh, recouped, or at least the losses suffered were never recouped. And so when we think about the race massacre, when we think about the calls for justice, when we talk about the racial wealth gap in this country, um, there is a racial wealth gap, racial disparity, and some of that is due directly to instances such as this, where Black wealth is just destroyed and never recouped. Is as, It's as if it never existed. Um, and so when the demands for justice have revolved around, you know, sort of, cash, some of the discussion has revolved around cash payments for survivors, but I think much more is owed. If, if, if the race massacre represents the liquidation of black wealth, intergenerational black wealth, or if, if and, 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 and as such represents kind of a disinvestment in the community, a hundred years later, because of the ways in which survivors were never provided restitution, a hundred years later, if we are trying to atone, reconcile, heal, there needs to be a historic investment into the Greenwood district. Now, w- Now, the form that that takes, I think should be left
4: up to the community, um, but it certainly is deserved. But I, I, I am, I'm fascinated by that dimension, that orientation of, 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 of your theorizing but I think there's another dimension I'd like to hear about, and, and it has to do with, with Fred Easter's question. When you walk around and talk to the members of the black community now, how, how how do they think about this idea of could it happen today? And and I that 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 question from Fred is still is still bothering me. It it frightens me a bit. Because Fred is suggesting that it could happen today, and I, I am, I'm finding it hard to to, to get my arms around that. I mean, your your consideration of the the uh, of the financial and the economic interests of the community and so on, uh, that that's natural, and I I would expect, I expect that people can sit down and make those projections and so on and calculate the worth and and get to the issue of the reparations. But I, I don't know how you're gonna calculate reparations in what for me is an equally, equally important dimension. Do the Blacks really feel that this could happen today? I mean, do they feel that if people went, you know, if 10 people took guns and went downtown uh, in, 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 this, in this geographic arena, that they could just start doing this and, and, and get away with it? I mean, is, is that, that that's the real central question for me in terms of the, the progress in 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 that part of the country in that state in that in that in that town in that you know in that city but Ezra it, look at look
0: at all the police murders that uh happen every week of of, of blacks
4: nah, that's that's individual murders I, I understand the structure of that and it's e- and it's easy to pull that off and yes yes they're, in, they're the institutions I mean that's what people mean by the notion of structural the structural organization of the institutions, of course, there's bias of this and bias of that, and this clear discrimination. I'm I'm not disputing any of that. I understand that. That's not the same thing. That's not the same thing as having a group of people decide they can come out down, uh, go downtown New Haven, and you know kill kill three hundred people, and the the whole the whole law enforcement system and so on is going to. Is going to come to a halt, and everybody is going to backing this thing. I mean, at this this psychologically, this to me is, is 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 massively inconceivable in many of the areas that I have to operate on. Because for one thing, the police forces now, yes, they're not like you know, they're not totally integrated and all that sort of stuff, but they're integrated enough that you've got to be pretty good at organizing stuff in order to get all the police in New Haven. To be backing this and keeping quiet, it is, simply isn't going to happen. And the prosecutor situation is it integrated fantastically? No, it isn't integrated fantastically. But there are enough prosecutors who are black and Hispanic in Connecticut that is going to be hard for you to get all of them to coalesce into one group and back all that that stuff going on. I mean, it, it, I just don't see this happening. But mm. but that that's got nothing to do with individualized. Um, Violence that goes on, and and I, and I know we don't have quite an answer to that, but but listen, this is what we've seen: blacks took to the streets and saying this isn't happening here tonight, and, and and the white people disappeared, and the only way anybody else was thinking about stopping it was to bring the army out. But I don't want to talk much more. I'm just because I I am I don't want to even talk about this in in a in an organized, structural way, of you know, with the army comes out. So I just want to know psychologically, for me, how do the black people feel walking around this area now in Oklahoma? I, I don't. I mean, I don't know the state, so I'm looking to use yeah. you to help with this, because because I think that's an important contribution. If if the blacks still feel that it's like it's like 1921. Boy, that's a real serious, that's a real serious psychological finding. I mean, that's that's important.
1: Yeah, I would say, um, it's a very complex um, question, but I would say that um, what was destroyed May 31st, June 1st, 1921 was many things, but, Paramount among them was trust between the black community and the city or the state or whites in general. And the ways in which the city, the police, the state of Oklahoma responded to it initially and subsequently um, over over the decades has only done more to deepen the level of mistrust or the, the, the extent of mistrust that there is between the city and, and 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 Greenwood. And so I would say psychologically there is very little if any trust uh, in broad sections of, of 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 Black Tulsa um you know you know and I don't know if I would say that there is a deep fear or belief that what occurred in 1921 uh, would occur again in the same way to the community. And there's real fear there. But I think all we need to do is is look at the events of January 6th. Uh, I mean, if a a group of whites or let's say a mob of whites is willing to attack US Capitol in broad daylight, it stands to reason that a similar group of white people could muster the courage or even the audacity to attack a Black community. And so I, I think mob violence is still with us. Mob lynching culture is certainly still with us, although we do not see its ugly head, it rear its ugly head in the way that we've seen it with the January 6th attack. But certainly the sentimentality and the logic of it it's all still very much a part of American culture. Um, we have not uh, had an exorcism where that part of our American identity is no longer a part of it. And, and so I can say for sure, when I, what, when, when I step back and, and think about this, what worries me is the ways in which lynching culture is still a part of our culture, Um, the ways in which, you know, I know even, you know, just imagine, you know, in the days following the the insurrection, there was a ringing of the fist about this should never happen and, and this is horrific. And now those same, you know, several months later, those individuals who participated in this in some quarters are being held as victims that we need to give empathy to, um, we, you know, we are construing them as, as anti-American when they're American heroes. I mean, you can just see begin to see how a year from now, or a year and a half from now, when the first um, sort of court proceedings began against individuals who were connected to it, how there will be a whole narrative justifying what they did. That again is a part of lynching culture, um, and so it lives with us. It hasn't gone anywhere. Um, we certainly haven't reckoned with it. Um, but whether or not Black Tolson's Greenwood residents live with that terror that it could happen again in the way that it happened in 1921, uh, I don't think so. But I certainly know psychologically that you know there is very little trust, if any. Um, because of the way in which the city and the state has handled not just the massacre, but there's a hundred years worth of history uh, between 1921 and 2021, uh, in which again the community has felt that the city has did very little uh, in their in their interests. The
0: Professor hold the hold. Hill,
1: can I can if I? I may.
0: Uh, um, There is a sister who teaches in the history department at Rutgers University, who made the simple point that white violence is seen as protest, black protest is seen as violence.
3: That's evident. I mean... um, Bill,
0: what were you going to say, Bill?
3: I was going to say, you know, a broader kind of comment on this, uh, on the situation today. What gave rise to the presidency of Donald Trump? Well, there were a number of things. I think a very significant part of the Donald Trump rise was eight years of Barack Obama being president, a reaction by white supremacists against this idea that this uppity nigger got to be president. Yeah. I use the term uppity nigger because that's the phrase that I've heard used in connection, for example, with the Tulsa riot. Um, and Barack and, 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 uh, and Trump is still with us. He's still animating this, uh, this ferocious group of people who, as you said, are willing to destroy the U.S. Constitution in order to have power. So it's very real, I think, and we need to be concerned about it. For the sake of our democracy
5: as well so as for race relations. Let me, let me take a quick shot at, at, at Ezra's question if, if you could give me a minute. So in the minds of some political observers, Oklahoma is the reddest state in the country. There aren't any pockets of blue when you look at a map in Oklahoma. And Ezra, in, re- in response to your question and really Fred's too, I think that the individual, that the violence against Black individuals is indeed reflective of the systemic issue that could lead to another outbreak like the Tulsa riot, Tulsa massacre, sorry. About five years ago, you probably remember Terrence Crutcher, an unarmed Black man, was shot by a white Tulsa policewoman. She was acquitted of manslaughter, if I remember correctly. The jurors, after the trial said that there was no doubt in their minds that she was guilty, but that a strong enough case had not been presented against her. And it was their belief that the evidence was there that she was guilty. So the system was complicit in her acquittal and that system still exists. In my mind at any rate, there's no doubt that 1921 could happen again.
0: Could it happen again here? I would have said no a year ago, but after January 6th, my answer is maybe. That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.